But uh, this evening, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And I want to start off with this illustration of this uh, small boy uh, and his father. His father would occasionally would sneak into uh, his neighbor's orchard and would pluck some of the choicest fruits. And he always, when he did this, he always made sure that, you know, the coast was clear. Uh, no one was looking when he'd done this. Uh, but one day, his son tagged along as he went and, and he went and, and crept into his neighbor's field. And carefully, he looked around in every direction and went and was going to about to grab a piece of the fruit when his son yelled out, Dad, Dad, you didn't look up. Uh, you forgot to see if God was watching you. And, and as, we, uh, as that story illustrates so much, there's temptations all around us in this life. It could be picking some of your neighbor's fruit when no one is looking. And some are easy to deal with, right? Some are easy to deflect, but there are other temptations in this life that we have to go out of our way to try to avoid. That may be a problem with us. And I want to look at a couple of scriptures before we jump into the actual text of Matthew chapter 4. But in James chapter 1, verses 12 and 15, James here says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And as we, you know, we looked at this morning in the chapter, in Exodus chapter 16, of how God tested the Israelites. We understand that God tests us. He, he tests the Israelites' faith. He tests our faith. But God does not tempt God does not tempt us to do evil. And in fact, here in verse 13, it says, uh, God cannot be tempted. God doesn't tempt, and he cannot be tempted. And God will always provide a way of escape for us, as 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us. And temptation in itself is not the sin, as James tells us. While we have to deal with it, you know, we, we may have to deal with temptation, but we don't have to yield to it. We, we don't have to succumb to it. And man is tempted when his own lust, verse 14 tells us, carries us away and we are enticed by our own lust. And that's when, when sin is conceived, uh, James says here in verse 15. And again, temptation is all around us. Another set of scriptures in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Here the apostle says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And really, John is narrowing down for us these three basic categories of temptations. The lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And we understand that Satan has been using these devices uh, since the beginning of time, you know, Eve dealt with the same problem. If you recall back in Genesis chapter 2, when, when 
God was speaking to Adam, he told him, remember, that you could have anything in that garden, but, the, the, but that one tree, you should not eat of its fruit, for if you do, you will surely die. And then by chapter 3, Eve is deceived by the serpent, and he says to her, you surely will not die. And because she was deceived, and because she was tempted by the serpent, Genesis 3 verse 6 says this, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And we notice in that verse that all three of those categories are present. That Eve saw that the tree was good for food, right? The, the lust of the flesh, it was good for the food, it could nourish the body, and so she wanted to partake of that fruit. She said that it was a delight to her eyes, right? the lust of the eyes, and also that it was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. She wanted that fruit in order to have those promises that were made. And so as we notice in, in Scripture, Satan goes by many descriptions and many, and many names. The devil, the word devil means accuser, slanderer. Uh, he's the adversary. He, he's the ruler of the demons. And within Scripture, he's depicted in Genesis 3 as a serpent. In 1 Peter chapter 5, as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in the book of Revelation, he's that great red dragon. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 4 that he is even an angel of light. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. But here in our text this evening in Matthew chapter 4, we get another description of Satan. Of the devil, and he is referred to as the tempter in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4 that, that he is a tempter. And we understand what that means. Maybe you enjoy fishing. You enjoy fishing, and what do you do? You get the nicest bait that you can, the shiniest, and you throw that, you cast that out there, and you're attempting to tempt a fish to. T- to forsake the, the weeds or the rocks that it may be hiding in, to go out and grab that bait, right? Uh, because it's unsuspecting that within that bait is a, a hook. Right? And, that, and, that, and that's exactly how Satan uses these things to our advantage, is that he gives us uh, these lusts of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, and we don't see that hook. We don't see it until it's too late uh, when it's hooked into us and he's reeling us in. But Satan in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, looks to use the same techniques that he did with Eve, also with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this event is is in three of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. And so it must be important that God wants us to know how Jesus met and overcame temptation so that we might conquer it also. And so we want to examine the, these verses, uh, these scriptures, as we, as we go through here and as we notice each one. But let, let's get a sort of a background to where we're at. Of course, Matthew chapter 3, we are uh, before Jesus' ministry. This is sometimes referred to as the, the years of preparation. He is preparing to go uh, into his ministry that's going to last from three to three and a half years. And in the first half of Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene, and, he, and he's re- preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in, at the end of chapter 3, John baptizes Jesus. We recall that John baptizes Jesus, and, and it's interesting that this takes place before chapter 4, right? Because baptism does not mean that it's the end of temptations in our lives. In fact, 
it's going to start gearing up. Uh, because now you are a child of God and Satan is not going to lessen his attacks, but he's rather, he's going to intensify them on the Christian. And Mark's account tells us that immediately after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness. Let's look at what Matthew says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And again, Mark tells us that this happens immediately. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, he is led into the wilderness to be tempted, but he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Luke tells us he ate nothing those days. And, and 40 days really is the, the, the length, uh, it's close to that length of the limit the body can handle without food. So Jesus is going to be at his weakest physically um, as a human. And if the devil is ever going to best him, it's right here, and it's right now. And it says that Jesus became hungry. Well, why? Why did Jesus intentionally weaken himself to, uh, in this instance? And it, it's really to show us the power of God. This was according to God's will. See, when, when you're hungry, you're focused on feeding yourself. Right? You're focused on taking care of your physical needs. But very few of us focus on our spiritual needs at that point. And Jesus is going to show us the power of God through this instance, through this example, that he's at the weakest he could be physically. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And he's going to take on Satan and these temptations. And this is not a chance meeting. Right? This isn't a meeting uh, that just happened by happenstance, but Satan knew where to find him. Jesus knew that he was coming and that he was ready. And before, again, we jump in and observe these three temptations, I want you to notice what the Hebrews writer said about Jesus and temptation. In Hebrews 2.18, he said, For since he himself was tempted in that which he was, has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Right? Jesus in the flesh was tempted in all ways that we are, and so he knows what we go through. He, he knows the peer pressure that we, we face each and every day. He knows those things. And then the Hebrews writer says in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And see, that's the difference there in verse 15, that Jesus never succumbed to those temptations. We do, but as we look at these accounts, we can learn from them, we can learn how Jesus dealt with them, and how he recognized them, and so we want to do that this evening, and so let's look at this first one, the temptation of Christ, and again, these are the same tactics that Satan used on Eve, and as John said in 1 John chapter 2, and so we'll notice in verses 3 and 4, this first temptation, the lust of the flesh, so Matthew records for us here, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Again, isn't that how Satan works? Isn't that likely how Satan works, that Jesus is weak and hungry? And he does the same thing to us, right? He, he doesn't play fair. He waits till we're at our weakest spot. And he's, and he's, you know, he, he's getting uh, to Jesus and he's saying, if you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, show me what you can do. And so he's building upon Jesus's extreme hunger. And he says, command that these stones become bread. To 
turn stones to bread would be nothing for our Lord and Savior. This would be nothing for him to do. In John chapter 2, he turns water into wine, into that grape juice. In Matthew chapter 14, he feeds 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves. Right? He, he changes uh, these things. Um, he multiplies these things. It would be nothing for him to take these stones and turn them into bread. But what Satan is doing is he's seeking to lead Jesus to distrust God's provisions. Jesus, your body, your flesh is hungry. Feed it. Turn these, bre- or turn these stones into bread. But instead of using his divine powers, right? instead of Jesus using the miraculous, which he could do, he met them the same way each one of us has to meet these temptations as well, and that's by relying on the power of God's word. And we're going to notice that in each of these examples, each of these temptations, Jesus is going to refer to Scripture. He's going to say, it is written. And it's interesting enough that, that all of these Scriptures come from the book of Deuteronomy that, that Jesus is going to refer to. And he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where God is teaching Israel to depend on him, to depend on his provisions. And again, we talked about that this this morning's lesson about the manna. That's exactly what he's referring to here. God gave them the manna. He he gave them uh, clothing that never wore out those 40 years. The, uh, The Bible says that their feet never swelled those 40 years. God provided for them those 40 years. But remember, after the people left Egypt, uh, he tested their faith by allowing them to be hungry in the wilderness. And remember, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and some of them desired to return where they were, uh, where they had that regular food. Remember, they said, we remember the fish, the daily fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, all of this stuff. And we're out in the wilderness, and we're hungry, and you brought us out here to die, Moses. But despite their lack of faith, God graciously cared for them by sending manna, that that bread from heaven. And God was teaching his people to trust him. God allowed them to be hungry, but then he fed them from heaven, and he made Israel know that they were dependent on God. And we too, we can fall into that trap of seeking our fleshly desires, our fleshly temptations, lacking trust in God that he's going to provide for us. And maybe we're choosing our jobs and professions over Christ. Maybe we're, we're looking for material success. Maybe we're just so busy, you know, at home uh, that we have no time for spiritual things. And Satan wants us to put our needs of our flesh ahead of our spirit. Uh, he wants us to choose the bread, right? The physical bread over the will of God. But Jesus unlike ancient Israel, demonstrated the appropriate trust in God. He neither grumbled against God like the Israelites did, and he never took matters into his own hands, but instead he humbly trusted that God would fulfill his promises. What is the most important thing in our lives? What is, what is that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, what things will be added to you? Well, he tells us back up in verse 25 and following that we should not be worried about what we will eat or what we will drink or or what we will wear, right? Life is more than food and drink, and the body is more than clothing. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. He will provide these things for you, but he wants you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. These are the things that our soul longs for, 
Okay, and as we move on into the second temptation, the boastful pride of life, let's look at verses 5 through 7, because here is the next temptation that the devil is going to do. It says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, again, uh, we see this next temptation, this boastful pride of life. That Satan takes Jesus, he leads him to Jerusalem, the holy city. He has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest part of the temple. And he wants him, again, to prove your identity. Are you the Son of God? If you would do so, throw yourself down. If you you are saying that you are, throw yourself down. And then, did you notice what the devil did here in this instance? He cited scripture. The devil cited scripture. He cited Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. And again, it says, he will command his angels concerning you. And then he says to Jesus, on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And though Satan correctly quoted this passage, what he was doing was he was taking it out of context. He he was using this verse to say, in essence, that God will protect anyone in all situations, right? Just throw yourself down and he uh, he will protect you. His angels will protect you. But Jesus corrected his misuse of this text by proving from Scripture that this, ma- this passage in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament context, was meant to encourage the people and was never intended to test God. And so again, Jesus defends Scripture with Scripture. He goes to Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, and says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, if we were to study uh, what was in reference to there, they were talking about right after Exodus 16 uh, with the manna in Exodus 17, they needed water. Right? They were looking for water, and they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron again. And we noticed that they, they, they asked this question to, to Moses. They said, is the Lord among us or not? You know, what, a, what a brash thing to say uh, to, to Moses, uh, the, the spokesman for God. And they had this unrealistic trust in God, and we are, you know, we are taught to trust God, right? Proverbs three, five, and six: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge His way, and His path will make you straight. Right? We are to, not to turn trusting into making trial of God, and, and this is what Satan wants us to do, and it's what he wanted Jesus to do: is to put God on trial, and to even do that, he quoted Scripture. He said, "Here's what the Scriptures say." Uh, of course, he was using them out of tech, on a context incorrectly, but he was um, trying to get Jesus to put God on trial, to test him against his own word. Again, this boastful pride of life, this arrogance that he had. And again, he wants us to do the same thing. And we might have even questioned God ourselves in this, in this life. You know, God, are you among us or not? You know, maybe something has happened in our, in our lives, whether it was a death or a loss of a job or a physical harm that we might have had. And we might have done this as well as put God to the test and asked him, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Of course, Jesus never promised that the Christian life would be easy. He said, take up your cross and follow me. But we do know 
As, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so Jesus tells Satan, he says, do not put God to the test. Right? And he's telling us, trust his promises. He trusted that his father would not fail him as Israel had done back in the Old Testament. And we need to do that as well. Finally, in, in this last temptation, let's look at this in verses 8 through 10. Here again, Matthew records, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. See, we know that Jesus came into the world to be the king over God's promised kingdom. Right? But, and if God was going to make this happen, then Jesus was going to have to go by way of the cross. Right? This was God's plan all along from the foundation of the world that Jesus was going to be sacrificed on the cross. But Satan was holding before him a shortcut to glory. Why should Jesus have to experience a cross? Why not worship Satan right now and get life right now? Have, it, have that advantage right now and you can have all that your eyes desire. The, the lust of the eyes as he appeared looking at all the nations of the world. And really that's what a lot of us will do is we look for the path of least resistance. You know, Satan can make things look good. But... With his limited powers, you know, within scripture, he's referred to as the ruler of the world and the God of this world. And so because of that, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us we need to put on the full armor of God, right? We need to put on the full armor of God to protect ourselves from the schemes of the devil. And notice in this, in this challenge, in this temptation, um, Satan doesn't say, if you are the son of God, right? He doesn't do that in this instance. And what that tells us is that this is open to all of us. Right? Everyone will be challenged at this regard. Our, uh, as far as uh, uh, what he says, all things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And, but of course, Jesus confronts him and says, go Satan. Jesus tells Satan to leave his presence. And then he quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Again, if we were to hearken back to the Old Testament, we saw that the people, when they entered the promised land, they were tempted over and over again to forget what the Lord had blessed them with and those covenant promises and to be influenced to worship those Canaanite gods. Right? Idols were appealing because they were, they were tangible. Right? You could touch them, you could hold them, you could display them. They were a shortcut to deity, to, to gods. And so people were attracted to these idols. And Satan, he offers shortcuts today. He says to us, live how you want to live. Right? If it looks good to the eye, go, go for it. Right? There's nothing holding you back. That God's grace will cover, you, cover everything, no matter how you choose to live. You know, but, but Paul dealt with that same theory, that same that same uh, lust of the eyes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Shall we continue to sin that God's grace will increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so as Christians, we need to refuse to take those shortcuts. 
right? Refuse to shake, take those shortcuts that Satan offers us to fall down and worship him, whether it's perverting uh, worship or not following Jesus to the fullest. We never compromise to evil, no matter how much gain it may seem to offer. You know, as we conclude this lesson this evening, our greatest adversary, Satan, he is real and he is relentless. And if we were to read Luke's account, it's interesting that Luke says in chapter 4, verse 13, that after the tempting, Satan left him until an opportune time. You know what that means? That Satan returned. Right? He returned and tried to tempt Jesus some more in his life. And again, we are going to be dealing with that uh, as every day of our lives as Christians. Satan is relentless, and he is attempting to tempt us into falling into one of his temptations. And it's, it's wonderful to contemplate a day in which temptation will be permanently past tense, right? that we'll no longer have to worry about that. But until then, we benefit so much by reading this account here in Matthew chapter 4 and seeing how Jesus coped with this temptation. He resisted him politely, right? yet, yet re resolutely. There was no uh, dallying. There was no hint of compromise. And by use of the scripture appropriate for the occasion, he took up the sword of the Spirit. Right? He used it in defense. He used it on offense. And it really it helps us appreciate what he endured in order to give us salvation. That he went through all of the temptations, as the Hebrew writer told us, yet without sin, Man's greatest need in this life is spiritual. It's a right relationship with God and not physical. The food and clothing, the lusts of the flesh. And there is great power, as we saw in this, this lesson this evening, there is great power in quoting the word of God to help us resist temptation. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. This evening, if, if you're a Christian and you've had troubles and problems with, with temptations in this life, and maybe you've some, succumbed to those, there's no better time than now to return to the Lord, right? to return to Him. Maybe it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life that have lured you away from, from His uh, heavenly abode, from uh, His kingdom, from His church. And maybe it's time to come back. You realize that it's time to come back to him and to serve him and serve him only. No longer worshiping Satan, but uh, to worship God alone. And you need the prayers of this congregation. This is the opportunity to do that. Right? No better time in front of your brothers and sisters to get the encouragement that you need, get the prayers that you need. Uh, maybe you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. And again, this is... No better time than to put Christ on in baptism. Mark said, or wrote in Mark 16, 16, He who believes and has been baptized shall be saved. Again, if we can help you this evening with any of those desires, we'd ask that you come forward now as we stand and sing this song of invitation.